Okay, so next week you're going to be looking at, uh, we're, we're going to be talking about some of the indigenous people and what happened with them. Uh, but this week we're going to uh, fi be finishing up the second industrial revolution. So it should be good. Ready to go. For starters, second industrial revolution involved chemicals and electricity. And today we're going to learn steel. Okay, steel's, steel's the big thing. I know you know some of this, though. Okay, so what was the deal with steel? Well, how is steel, what, what is it? Do you remember from? It's iron and something else. This is, I got a lot of blank looks too. Hey, what steel is, is steel is a mixture of iron and carbon. It is just two to 4% carbon, but that's enough to make it be substantially different. Okay, so iron is an element. It's easy to adjust, it's easy to, to hammer into a different shape. But once it's hammered into that shape, it doesn't keep it very well. It's too malleable. That makes it, well, that means it's, it's easy to bend. So it's just not effective. So it, it rusts too easy, it's too easy to work with. So instead, we have steel. It has very little rust and it's super strong. This bridge illustrates really well what we're talking about. This is called the Eads Bridge. It goes across the Mississippi River. You notice in this picture that that's a wide river. You can't go across it very effectively with iron. Uh, not this far down, not this far south. This is in St. Louis. As a matter of fact, the arch, like it hasn't been built by the time of this picture, but when it is built, that big St. Louis arch would be like right here. So this is right by it. Eads was a, um, what's the word? an architect and he needed to bridge the Mississippi no one had done it before not that far south not when it was that wide because they didn't have the material necessary to do it but he went to this dude named Andrew Carnegie and he found uh, the material in steel so that's what's cool by the way that bridge is still there I'll show you another picture later talking about it now before this they had steel for millennia before this. But in order to make it, to mix the, the carbon in, you had to get the steel super hot. Uh, steel forms a kind of lattice work, like a box. I'll have my marker. Picture it like a box. Okay. When it gets heated up, it expands, right? And the carbon molecule in the middle, when it cools down, gets trapped. It takes a lot of heat and, and some oxygen to do that. So if you were like, you wanted a Spanish steel sword, you'd go to the blacksmith and they would take weeks and weeks to pound this out. You know, blowing air into the furnace and getting it up. And it, it was so long and so time consuming but this dude named Bessemer invented this new process. So looking at this, 
this diagram. You put the iron in, you start to heat it up, it melts, you add some carbon, and see this, this thing down here, these tubes? What they do with that is they shoot air into it so that the air comes up into it, makes it hotter, and also allows it to, to bond with that carbon. And so you have, you have steel. So what's different in the 1800s is that they made it easy to mass manufacture it. So Andrew Carnegie heads over to Europe and he learns this process from this dude in Britain. So what? Well, steel changes everything. For starters, this dude named John Deere that you may have heard of had started to use steel for plows. And so here's John Deere's steel plow. Steel was much more effective. It, it lasted for a really long time. Steel allows you to build bridges. Here's the Eads Bridge again. You see again how big that river is. And that's it today, like it's still in use. And then they're, they're able to build skyscrapers with a steel structure inside. And then, of course, you put something else on the outside to make it look pretty. This is still the way we build buildings. This is the way we build the building that we're in right now. So you've got all of that. Incidentally, steel is also used for elevators. Here's your random side information to share with your mom today. Um, elevators are invented in this time period by a dude named Samuel Otis. Otis's company still exists. So if you go into most elevators, you look at it and you're like, oh, this is an Otis elevator. Why is every elevator named Otis? That's the company that makes them. Still the biggest one. Hey, so we've got steel being used to make all kinds of great stuff. And the big name in steel is Andrew Carnegie. Now, let me just, I used to live in Pittsburgh, and it actually is pronounced Carnegie. That's the correct pronunciation. How do I know? Because I got mocked by one of his relatives for saying Carnegie. If you see like a documentary about him, you'll see that the, the historians that are experts in him and in his life all pronounce it Carnegie, and the ones who don't know all pronounce it Carnegie. Yep, Carnegie Mellon. It's one of the best places for robotics in the world. It's in downtown, downtown Pittsburgh. Yeah. Okay, so the, in the picture on the left, the older dude, that's him at age 16. When he was a very young man, he, uh, his job was to haul bobbins around. Some of, most of you have had sewing. You know what a bobbin is. So he had to carry the box of bobbins. And he ran bobbins from place to place, got to be fast and whatever. So a job opened up as a messenger for the telegraph line. So he took that job and became a messenger for the telegraph. Then he, uh, he taught himself how to use the machines there. He, in fact, he taught himself almost everything. One of the rich guys in, in Pittsburgh uh, opened up his library to any poor working 
person, any poor working class people. And so Carnegie would check out book after book after book and was constantly reading and improving his mind. And so he gets better and better and better at this. So there's that. So he, he gets, he learns how to use the machines, becomes a telegraph operator, uses the skills he gains there to get a job at the railroad and works his way up at the railroad until by the age of 24, he is the superintendent of the railroads for the railroad company he works for. That means he's second only to the owner. So pretty fancy. And that guy helps him invest some of his money. He makes more and more money and in the end becomes one of the richest people that ever lived. So it works out pretty well for him. He works really hard. This poor child gets better and better and better and better. Till he's the man in charge. But there's one thing he doesn't like to do, and that's be a jerk to people. He tries to be, he tries to be kind, but in the business world in that day, most of them were, well, really brutal and ruthless. So he decides that he's going to hire someone to do all the brutal, ruthless stuff for him, and they hire Henry Frick. Have you ever heard of him before? No, most of you haven't. Okay. Frick's job is to do the stuff Carnegie doesn't want to do. Do all that kind of nasty thing. And I think I can illustrate Frick's personality pretty well by telling you about this event. Are you familiar with it at all? A little bit? One person. Okay. Frick is one of the key members in the South Fork Hunting and Fishing Club. So this is, this is a club. Oh, by the way, all of these things are gonna be part of uh, six. So you can see this, these are their summer cabins. Like if you have a mansion for your summer cabin, you're pretty wealthy. So this is, this is a place for the super wealthy to go they have this little lake, it's a man-made lake, where they can go hunting and fishing on and, and enjoy all of that kind of stuff. Now, at the end of this lake is, I said it was a man-made lake, so is this dam, the South Fork Dam. Sometimes they just call it the South Fork Lake, but Lake Kanama is its correct name. Um, We'll call it the South Fork Lake, though, because it's easier to pronounce. So this, this dam goes across it, and the road goes across that. Well, Frick's carriage is too wide for the dam. So he orders them, and he's part owner, right? So he orders them to lower the dam. Now, what does that do? It does widen the road because the dam is shaped like you know, there's water over here. The dam is shaped like this. So taking it down widens the road. What else does it do? Yeah, it gets it closer to the water, which weakens the dam. And since I mentioned a flood, we know this isn't going to go well, right? So here we go. 
Look first at the map on the left and find the South Fork Dam. It's kind of on the right. Did you see it? Okay, now follow that thing down through past South Fork. It's just a couple houses, not very big. All the way along past the viaduct. See what's down there at the bottom to the left? Yeah, Johnstown. Now look at this primary source for a second. What are they measuring? Yeah, they're measuring the water levels, whether they're above or below normal. Okay, and how much does it change from day to day? No, not too much. Until what day? The 31st. And what happened? It's significantly higher. Why? Yeah, heavy rain, HVY rain, heavy rain. Okay, so we had a really heavy rain and the dam burst. So the water flooded down from the South Fork Dam all the way along down a hit Johnstown. Now they knew it was going to break. They sent a message down warning the people of Johnstown, but uh, the people had had tons of warnings before. They warned them almost every time it rained that the dam was in danger. So the people at the telegraph office, they just ignore it. They don't even warn the rest of the people. They just let it go. But it's kind of like, you know, if the fire alarm goes off, the first question I always get is, do we have to leave? Right? It's kind of like that. So most of them don't. 2,200 people died. Now, so what punishment do you get if you're a super rich person like Henry Frick and you've just caused the death of 2,200 people so that you could take your carriage more conveniently? Yeah. You, now, you, you would like own the company. You'd sue them, you'd get paid a lot of money. Back then, nothing. That's why the slide is blank. Nothing happens. Most of them don't even feel guilty about it. Twenty-two hundred. You don't. Two thousand two hundred. You don't need to remember the number. In fact, they debate on exactly how many. But the official number is twenty-two something. Andrew Carnegie's the only one, only member of the club who feels guilty about this. It really bothers him. He writes a book called The Gospel of Wealth. You see, I have this quote from it in here. Uh, he, he decides that the best thing you could do is to give away your wealth if you're super wealthy. And because he was benefited so much from books, he decides that he's going to build a bunch of libraries. Do you recognize this one? Yeah, where is it? 
Yeah, so this is Brigham City's library. If you go in the library, you know how there's, there's the children's section kind of to your right, and then to the left there's the stairs up and down. The stairs take you into this part of the building, the part that Andrew Carnegie built or paid for. Uh, he becomes huge into philanthropy and gives away most of his wealth. Other things that come from this, uh, th there's this lady named Clara Barton. She was a teacher originally, and then she helped the soldiers as they were wounded in the Civil War. So after the Civil War, she decided to go to Europe to kind of recover. She couldn't stay away. There was a conflict going on there, so she helped their soldiers over there, too. She was especially a pioneer in treating wounds and treating medical instruments, uh, sanitizing them so that gangrene didn't set in and they didn't have huge problems. So she... Uh, While she's over there, she ran into an organization called the International Red Cross. And what the Red Cross did is, well, just helped with any kind of disaster. So she came back to the United States and formed this group called the American Red Cross that you've probably heard of. One of the first disasters they respond to is the Jonestown flood. So Clara Barton herself shows up with a lot of her volunteers. They built three hotels for the survivors to stay in. This is one of them, the second one that she built. Uh, so they had a place to go. So Clara Barton, American Red Cross, kind of cool. Now, what happens to Frick? Frick keeps pushing his workers harder and harder and harder. In the end, when one of them dies because the working conditions are unsafe, they decide to go on strike. They have all these really crazy expectations, like they think that they should get paid when they have to work more hours. And they think that they should have working conditions so that they're not going to die. You know, crazy expectations over the top here. So they go on strike because Frick thinks these are just ridiculous. So they go on strike and um, he decides he's going to bring in a group called the Pinkertons. It's technically a private detective agency but really we could describe it better as a private army. And you see they have like the creepiest slogan ever. We never sleep. So they come in, they end up fighting with the, with the uh, steel plant workers. They kill several of them. So the steel plant workers go into the factory, kind of hole up there. Now the steel plant workers are blocking uh, other people from moving in and doing the, the work. The Pinkertons are supposed to stop them 
in the end, the governor calls in the National Guard and makes and takes over the factory that way. But it doesn't matter, like damage is done. Most of the public sided with the workers. After all, they blamed Frick for South Fork, for Jonestown. And so when they find out Frick has been working workers to death, they're not going to side with him. Carnegie comes back. He's been in Scotland. He comes back and says, Frick, what have you done? Fires him. Now, Frick is a scary guy. At one point, he got shot by a Russian anarchist. He got up after having been shot and beat the crap out of the dude and held him till the police came. So after Carnegie fires him, he runs into the other room, actually runs into the women's bathroom and hides. So picture, you know, one of the most powerful men who ever lived hiding in the bathroom while Frick pounds on the door and screams at him. Yeah, good fun. But Frick finally kind of gets his a little bit. Um, and Frick is gone, Frick is out. Yeah, yeah, you're fired. I'm gonna go hide in the bathroom while you scream at me. So now I have this activity for you. It's not gonna take you that long. It's not, it's not really very complicated, but I have to explain to you who Jacob Reese was. So you see his thing there, Jacob Reese. He wrote a book called How the Other Half Lives, but it started as his attempt to show the middle class and the upper class, just what life was like for the poor. So if you remember from your other history class, they call this the Gilded Age because it looks like gold and it's really crappy underneath. So what Reese did is he tried to show everyone just how crappy it was. So he showed up at the homes, the apartments, the tenements of poor people and just took their picture. And then he showed it in what's called a magic lantern show, the forerunner of a projector. So you've seen a magic lantern show in Tarzan when Jane is showing Tarzan what London is like. That's a magic lantern show. So he would show these pictures to the wealthiest people in New York, and they were just shocked. They didn't understand just how bad things were. Okay, so Jacob Reese, How the Other Half Lives, we're going to go through these, and you don't need to do complete sentences. I just want you to see these pictures and think about them and what they mean. So let's do the first one together. Oh, by the way, these titles, totally from him. I didn't make them up at all. They're the ones he gave in his show and then his book. So Mulberry, New York. First, we're going to write down two things we notice. So what do you see? Lots of people. It is super crowded. Good. I told you not to write complete sentences, right? Usually you should, but this time we're, we're in a hurry, so. Okay, what else do you notice? It's dirty. This is filthy. Oh, I like that too. There's lots of wagons. So let's take these things, let's put them together. What do we see? Living conditions are crowded and bad, and they're technologically behind. Yeah, good. Let me just show you where these are. If you hop into Canvas 
in the modules, you'll see this lesson 4.5, the Jacob Reese slideshow. Here it is. I don't know why it changed my font into, into this disaster. But again, his, his name's not mine. And go through and finish that up. Shouldn't take you too long. But enjoy it. <laughs>